for a minute this morning about massive problems. Um, so I'm going to ask for your help with this. Uh, if prob problems were measured in mass, uh, we might think of one kilogram problems, of 10 kilogram problems, of 1,000 kilogram problems like a metric ton, or maybe even a megaton problem. So I'm going to give you two simple examples, and I'd love your thoughts about the uh, kinds of problems that might fit in this. So here's a one kilogram problem. I forgot where I put my keys. Oh no, where are they, right? It's a problem, but it's a one kilogram problem, as long as you eventually find it. If you go to the other extreme, to the megaton, so here might be a megaton problem. A giant asteroid hits the Earth and it alters our orbit around the sun. Right? This is a pretty big problem, right, and extreme. So I would love your help in between. So what's another example of perhaps a one kilogram problem? And we don't have any. What's a, what's a one kilogram problem? What's a low level problem? But we experience it. No creamer for my coffee. No creamer for the coffee. That's right. That's a real problem. You started making waffles and we're putting in the water and the oil. I realized I didn't have enough mix. There's not enough mix and you've already started it. Yeah, yeah, that's a problem. How about a 10 kilogram problem? So a little bit bigger deal than this. No coffee. No coffee. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Serious stuff, but yeah, it's still a 10 kilogram, another kind of 10, 10 kilogram problem. Yeah. I, I was talking to Shirley, or Shirley this morning, and some people, so it's kind of relative. So some people's 10 kilogram problem mm -hmm. could be what they think is big, but then it's really insignificant when you look at like what's happening in Ukraine. Sure. Yes. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's very true. That's good. Yeah. Well, when you buy gum, then the flavor of the gum just doesn't last, right? Is that and, and that's that's real. I mean, especially if you value what you spent for it, and you think, what happened with this? Yeah. How about? Oh, you lock yourself out. Uh, cash flow until tomorrow. Yeah. This. This depends on each one of us. Um, yeah, and, and the plumbing system is slow. What was that? The plumbing system. <laughs> yeah. Now, with, now our problems are getting bigger. Um, yeah. So a, a thousand kilogram, a metric ton problem. These are getting pretty serious. What are some of these? Active gun. Active gun. Yeah. This is really serious. Yeah, time of death, a broken broken relationship, right? These get really serious, and so then we get to these to these metric ton problems, and we think about the things that might might end the world as we know it, might end relationships, might end a community. When we look at problems, a key thing is that these problems require a comparable solution, right? So a one kilogram problem requires a one kilogram solution. A megaton problem requires a megaton solution. And uh, the crisis comes when our problems are bigger than our solutions. Right? That's, and on some level, it, this, this can apply however big it is. But when we have hit the end of our solutions, whatever the problem is, this is a crisis. And when I think of the most serious ones, I, I think of major guilt or shame. 
and to say there's just no way to get rid of this. There's no way to change this. And death itself. And I think this is just beyond what we can do. As we look at the passage we're going to look at today, I invite you just to think for yourself what problem seems impossibly big. What is it that you think in my life and the lives of people around me, this is just more than I think there's a solution to it. I want to pray. Uh, and the prayer is very simple because it's a prayer from Ephesians 1. And so this is my prayer for us. So if you join in with, uh, with me in praying this prayer for God's work. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated on his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Our Father, we do pray with this prayer that you would open our hearts, that we would know this great hope to which you've called us. Your inheritance. And after he finished winning this debate, he went on and he told this parable that very clearly, yet very cleverly, revealed the evil in their hearts and their actions. They were not happy. <laughs> they were really upset about this. And, and, and he did it masterfully. Right? It was just so powerful that it wasn't a direct rebuke of them, but it was so clear to them and to everyone else that he had done this. So a direct interaction with them wasn't working, and so they had to try something more devious. They had to find a trick to get to Jesus because a direct interaction with him was not working. So here we are at verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right. And that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Let's stop there for a second. They sent spies. <laughs> Their other strategy wasn't working, so they sent people to pretend to have a sincere question. <laughs> but they came to trap Jesus, to trick him. And their goal was to hand him over to the power and the authority of the governor. Hold on to that for a second. But here was their goal. They wanted to ask Jesus a question so that the Romans would come and arrest him. Right? So that the Romans would be the ones who say, you have committed a crime against us. And so then they start out talking to Jesus as teacher. And they said, of course, Jesus, you don't show partiality. Meaning, you're not afraid to speak truth. You're not afraid to confront people. You're not afraid to say what's really true. Um, and they hope to use that. They hope to use Jesus' integrity against them. Because if they can get him to say what he thinks, in this case, they're convinced they would get him. And they thought, this question about taxes, there's just no way to answer it. You cannot win talking about taxes in a religious setting. <laughs> so why was it so problematic? Well, in their case, paying taxes to Caesar, 
The people hated it. They hated paying taxes, first of all, just economically. It was a lot of money. They hated losing this money to the government, right? What has changed? Politically, they said, this is a bad government. They were offended by what this government represented and what they did. They were unjust oppressors. And so they were opposed to giving them any money. Perhaps even more, they were really bothered by it theologically. Caesar claimed to be a god. And, of course, God had said there would be no other gods among you. The coin had his image on it. And they were told, don't have images of gods. No idolatry. So the people hated these taxes. And yet, to speak publicly against Roman taxation was considered rebellion against Rome. So if you stand up and you say, don't pay your taxes because it's unjust, because it's immoral, they would arrest you. Well, for the religious leaders, it was also a bit hard to talk against taxes and Rome because these chief priests were good at collaborating with Rome. <laughs> they tended to, uh, to find good ways to get along because it gave them extra privileges. So the religious leaders could never speak publicly about taxes. And they thought, so we've got Jesus. We publicly required him to say something about taxes. And so then we continue. Jesus saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public and astonished by his answer. They became silent. So let's look at this for a minute. So, so there's a, a picture of perhaps the coin that they had and it's got the Caesar's uh, image on it and, and it declared that he was God and that he was at least a God. But you notice what Jesus did? They're in the temple, the place that's supposed to be a holy place. He's talking to the religious leaders and says, hey, any of you got any change on you? <laughs> they reach into their pocket and pull out a coin that they say is so offensive. <laughs> Turns out they were collaborating with Rome because they were carrying Roman money. Right? So having this coin is already participating with Rome. But you know what else? What they're doing right here? They're trying to use Rome to get rid of Jesus. <laughs> See, they're very practical. They say, we want to use the power of Rome for our purposes. And so Jesus says, if you're using the power of Rome, then you would better give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. You owe them something because you're using them. But then Jesus goes on and says, but give to God what is God's. And, and this is where Jesus is just masterful that, that his answer was true, it was clear, it avoided both traps. Nobody could corner him, he couldn't be arrested for this. And by saying God is above Caesar, the others recognized the goodness in what he said. They thought they could trap him, when in reality, Jesus called for a radical obedience to God. He used this opportunity to say, God is God over all, we all owe everything to him. So Caesar's not your big concern. <laughs> your big concern is, are you giving to God what is his? And Caesar's got to answer that too. And so they became silent. They thought they could trap him. Masterfully, he not only dodges the trap, but he makes this radical claim of call to obedience. 
So seeing this, another group, the Sadducees, came up. So verse 27, some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife with no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third, married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? What an interesting, unexpected story. Uh, one of the great things that Luke does for us is we don't have to go do the background research to better understand the Sadducees. The key thing about them, Luke says, here's the key thing to know about Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection. They, they thought when you die, you're dead. They didn't believe in angels because they believe just the first five books of the Old Testament. And they say it's not talked about there, so somebody's making this up. We're the more conservative people. We'll only go with what God has revealed. And so they believe that there was no resurrection. So a key thing for the story is to know that's their belief. They start out and say, teacher. And so uh, this is what people who don't really believe what Jesus is saying <laughs> call him. Other people call him master or rabbi. But if you don't really believe him so much, you just call him teacher. And they don't really believe. But they talk about this scenario that's based in the Old Testament that a man must marry his brother's widow. And this is an odd one for us, but a key thing to know about the Old Testament context is that a woman who has neither son nor husband is totally vulnerable in society. There's no provision, there's no protection. She's in trouble. And so the Old Testament law was that the, 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 if the husband dies, his brother has to marry to create safety, provision. Safety for today and provision for the future. So this was the Old Testament law. And so then they make up the story about these seven brothers. And all seven of them marry her and die and there are no kids. And why no kids? Why not even the last one having kids? And, and saying there, there's too many husbands here. It's because none of the husbands were in any better position related to this woman than any other. Right? If one of them had had kids, then we'd say that's clearly the one who's truly the husband. Or if one of them outlived the woman, you would say, well, he was the husband to the end. But all seven of them were just the same. So why do they give this weird story? Well, they use this, this debating technique, reduction of absurdity, take it to the extreme case. They say, we can prove that there's a contradiction between God's law and the resurrection. We think we can prove that the resurrection is contrary to what God has taught in the Bible. And this is important because resurrection is essential to Jesus' ministry. He keeps saying, I'm going to die and come back to life again. <laughs> and so if the resurrection isn't true, it falls apart. So they think, we have trapped Jesus. So let's see his response. Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry 
nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die. For they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. So Jesus responds to this with first some statements that seem a little bit odd in what he describes. And yet he says, here's how to make sense of what you're saying. And he says, a key thing you need to do is to learn about the age to come. The age to come is not merely a continuation of this age. Yeah, it's similar, but there's some really important differences about that new age, about life after death that you need to know about. So he says, I want to teach you about that age to come. And one of the things he says about it is not everybody is considered worthy of that new age. He says, some people will be there, some people will not. And he says, in that new age, marriage is no more. Now, this is pretty radical because in the Old Testament, marriage and kids were essential to the blessing of God. This is how God's blessing came. He said to Abraham, I'm going to give you offspring from your own body. You're going to have offspring. And Sarah is going to be the mother. And he said, this is how the blessing of God will come. In the Old Testament, it was essential to have that. And he says, but in the new age, no more marriage and kids. What was the means of God's blessing is no longer a part of it. It's not, it doesn't even exist, he says. And he's not saying that, that people become angels. But he says, angels don't die, and so we don't need more angels. And in the New Age, he says, people won't die in God's kingdom, so we don't need more people. So marriage will be done with it. It will have served its purpose. And then Jesus goes on to talk about this account of the burning bush. And it's a good reminder that when the Bible was written, there were no chapter and verse numbers. So you wouldn't say, go to Exodus and, and you know, go to Genesis and go to this chapter, you have to tell, well, it's a story about the burning bush. <laughs> right? So go to Exodus, and you can remember, you know where that story is, because he uses Moses, because that's what the Sadducees accept. And uh, in Daniel, there's a much clearer description of resurrection, but he says, I'll prove it from the books that you accept. And he says, Moses shows that to God, all people are alive. Right? God is the God of life. He gives life to all that he knows. So God gives blessings and life to his people. This is how he works. And of course, it's important. He says it's not everyone. It's those who are considered worthy, right? Those who are uh, expressing their trust in Jesus as Savior. But he gives these blessings forever. And a key thing is that resurrection is not merely a longer life. Right? It's not merely saying, we'll take death out of the picture, but life just keeps going on. Because I've heard people say, who wants to live for a thousand years? Uh, there's enough challenges in however long we do live. And Jesus says, don't be confused by thinking it's just a longer version of this. There's something else going on. So he answers this question. He answers their their what they thought was a contradiction. And they say, he says to them, you actually don't understand the Bible very well, and you don't understand the new kingdom very well. And so then, verse 39, some of the teachers of the law responded, 
well said, teacher. And no one dared ask him any more questions. <laughs> right? they, they saw that nobody's going to trap him. It doesn't work. In fact, he keeps saying harder things if you keep asking. <laughs> I find it fascinating that in recognizing Jesus' greatness, some of Jesus' adversaries, the teachers of the law, they declared his mastery out loud. They say, wow, he is good. <laughs> and the rest declared his mastery by silence. In silence, they expressed, wow, he is good. Now, let me tell you something. I used to think, I used to think that Jesus is an amazing debater. I used to think that the story is about the fact that Jesus can win any debate. He is so good at this. Right? Well, actually, I still think that's true, but, but that's not what this passage is really about. Right? That's not what's most important. I think there's something deeper, more significant than this passage. So now I see, I think, this passage is saying is that Jesus is the one and only authoritative king of the far, far greater kingdom of God. It's not merely that he's good at debating. It's that he is the one who knows. And his kingdom is so much greater. So, uh, a quick quiz here. Um, there's uh, blue shorts and green shorts. Which one is bigger? Blue shorts. Yeah, it's kind of a close call, isn't it? Sometimes the greater thing is a little bit bigger. Right? Okay, so now here's another quick quiz. Uh, between the one in blue and the one in gray. Which one's bigger? Okay, so it's pretty obvious, right? Sometimes the difference is laughable. The mountain is clearly so much bigger than a, than a single person, right? The religious leaders thought that if they tried really hard, they could ask a question that Jesus couldn't answer. They thought, if we all get together and we, we talk about all the hard questions, maybe we can ask him that hard question. They thought if they worked really hard, they could trick Jesus into saying something to get him in trouble. Right? Let's just keep asking him questions, and eventually he'll say something that was a mistake, and we can trap him with it. They thought if they were really good at asking questions, they could reveal a problem with Jesus. Thank you. They thought that they were a little bit shorter than Jesus. But if they got up on their toes together, they could do better than he did. When in reality, Jesus was so far beyond them, there was never a chance they could succeed. The Son of God is not just a little smarter than we are. Right? The Son of God is not just a little bit wiser than we are. The Son of God is not just a little bit better than we are. He's not just a little bit more glorious than we are. He's not just a little bit more powerful than we are. The Son of God is immeasurably smarter, wiser, better, more glorious, and more powerful than we are. There is no comparison. Here's a way that helps me to think about it. So I'm thinking about some objects and their mass. So a person, I guess how many kilograms of mass there might be for a typical person. You don't have to reveal it to you or not. I'll pick a number. 70 kilograms? Right? Some of us, I would go than that, but that's okay. We won't go there. Um, a car. A car might weigh, let's say, 1,900 kilograms. That's a pretty heavy car. How about an A380 jet at takeoff? This is 587,000 kilograms. Isn't that amazing? That flies. That's incredible. The Great Pyramid at Giza. 
we'll say 5.8 billion kilograms. It's pretty big. Any guess on how many kilograms for the planet Earth? It's more than that, by the way. Um, there you go. You can, you can look at that and tell me what the number is. It's a lot, right? The sun is bigger than that. So, so the sun is something, something like that, too, with a whole bunch of zeros. And so then there are stellar black holes. Right? I love stellar black holes. It's a black hole that uh, might be 10 times as big as the sun, right, in, in terms of mass. So there is something called a supermassive black hole. Now, there's actually also something called a stupendously large black hole, but they're only theoretical. So, supermassive black holes. This is what's at the center of our solar, our galaxy. And it's something like that. Right? So, there's something I love about supermassive black holes. Wonderful theology in it. Right? Supermassive black holes. Here's what's so surprising. They're really hard to detect. They're really hard. You can't look up in the sky and see it. You can't get a, a, a telescope and say, let's go look at the black hole, right? Because it sucks all the light into it. So it's a dark spot. It's so hard to see it. Yet we know they're real. They are phenomenally massive and powerful. And they profoundly affect everything. The entire solar system in the, in the galaxy, they're so powerful. And so here's what I love. This is so much like Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's actually surprisingly hard to directly observe. And I've had debate with friends. They say, well, if he's so big, why is it that I can't reach out and touch him? Why is it that I can't just look and see him? Well, there's some other things that are amazingly large and influential. We have a hard time directly observing. Yet we know he is real. He is phenomenally big and powerful. And he profoundly affects all existence. And so this is what the psalmist said in much more poetic words than I use. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. So I say that to say comparing King Jesus to mere people, right? Comparing Jesus, the Son of God, with a human being, it's not like comparing the mass of two people and saying who's a little bit you know, more mass, who's a little taller. It's like comparing the mass of a person with a super massive black hole. Right, it's like saying, which is bigger, 70 kilograms or 20, uh, yeah, all of that, right? It's so clear which is greater. And yet the religious leaders thought, if we stand up on our tippy toes, we might get to be as tall as he is. And how often do we do that? We think, I'm not sure if he's big enough. I'm not sure if he's powerful enough for what we need. So the other comparison is the resurrection. Right, resurrection is not merely unending life. Right, it's not, it's not merely life that keeps going. The resurrection is not merely the good of earth minus the bad of earth. Right, sometimes we think, well, just think of all the good things of earth, take away the bad things, and there's the resurrection. No! The resurrection is not a sterile and monotonous existence that everything just works smoothly and it's all boring. And just to say it again, people don't become angels, right, to... But resurrection is a far more glorious reality than anything we understand. Right? To be known by the living God is one day to share his astoundingly glorious life. So comparing Jesus' kingdom to our world's kingdoms, 
It's not like comparing two continents and saying, now, how does North America relate to Europe and Asia, right? How do these things compare? And we better look at the map and figure out what kind of projection our maps use to know if it's big or small, right? It's like comparing a building to a supermassive black hole. Even if you pick the the, the Great Pyramid at its 5.8 billion, billion, yeah, billion kilograms, to that size. There's just no comparison. The kingdom of God is so far beyond anything we understand, and this is how the Apostle Paul put it. He says, we speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by spirit. God's plan for his people is beyond what we could ask or imagine. It's not just a little bit better version of earth. It is mind-blowing in its greatness and its glory because we can't imagine to even ask for the things that God has in store for his people in his kingdom. Right? Jesus is the one and only authoritative king. There is no comparison. And his kingdom is a far, far greater kingdom than we understand. He's not just a little bit greater than our greatest problems or fears or regrets or griefs. He is unimaginably greater. Right? The salvation to be revealed is not just a little bit better. It is unimaginably greater than what we experience now. So here's an application. We should spend more time filling our hearts with the size of our Savior than with the size of our problems. Can I get a witness? (laughs) Thank you. We need to spend more time filling our hearts with the size of our Savior than with the size of our problems. We go back to the prayer that we started with. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We should spend more time filling our hearts with the size of our Savior than with the size of our problems. And I don't know if you ever do that, I spent my time thinking, you know what, here's a problem that's just so big. Maybe it happens to you when you read the news in the morning or you listen to the news sometime during the day and you say, wow, what a mess this world is. And I read it again and then I think about it and I keep filling my heart with the size of the problem. We need to spend more time filling our hearts with the size of our Savior. I think of this in relationships and I think, oh, that relationship, that'll just never get restored. It just can't happen. And I tell myself why that is. We need to spend more time filling our hearts with the size of our Savior. 
than with the size of our problems. And, and so the truth is, our challenges are sometimes like one kilogram problems, right? But the reality is sometimes they are like megaton problems, right? Some of our problems really, really are awful. And as we looked at a few weeks ago, it is good to lament. It's good to spend time to cry out and say, God, will you solve this? We need you. Do you know my two favorite words? But God. But God is greater still. He is greater than whatever the problem might be. Right? What is impossible for people is possible for God. He can do it, and it's not hard for him. His power to change the world is beyond all we can imagine. His wisdom and skill to work out good out of disaster is beyond all we can imagine. We need to spend more time filling our hearts with the size of our Savior and with the size of our problems. One way to do that is to pray and obey. So here's a confession. Prayer can be hard. And sometimes I don't pray, first of all, because I think this problem is my size problem. I'll bother God when it gets too big. Right? I say, okay, so this is when I'm just supposed to get up and do the right thing. So I'll just do it. And I don't pray. And God says, I would love to have my power be a part of you doing this. But I say, no, no, don't worry about it, God. I'll just, I'll do my thing here. You, you give me, I'll save the big things for you. But then the irony is, then I come to a big thing and I think, I don't think God can actually do anything about that. Especially something in the past. See, that's already done. The harm's been done. There's no way to erase it. I think, God, why would I pray about something that's in the past? And I think, God, I don't think you can do anything about this. And sometimes I don't pray because I think, well, God's not going to do anything for somebody like me. Right? Why would he do that? So the invitation from James is, is, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them. We're invited to pray as an expression that our God is so much greater, that our God is so far beyond our troubles and the troubles of the world. And so we're invited to pray. And so I encourage you, find times to do this. It's wonderful to pray alone. And it is, in some ways, even more valuable to pray together with others. So our time of prayer this afternoon praying when you meet with somebody, pray after the service and somebody says, here's a burden I have. And say, let's stop and let's pray. Because God invites us to pray. And he says, I want my power to be at work here. And sometimes I don't obey because I don't actually trust God and his ways. I think his ways will make no difference and they're too costly. So I have to go my way. And, and God says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We're to pray and to obey because our God is so great. He is so good beyond all we can ask or imagine. And then in faith, we're to rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. First uh, Peter is a, a letter written to people who are struggling through challenging times in life. And he says this, In this hope, in this gospel, you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, 
There is all the praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When we fill our hearts with the greatness of our God, by faith we are led to rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy, sometimes in ways we don't understand it, but we say, God, I know this is real and you are good, and I will trust you. We are called to believe the greatness of our God because Jesus is the one and only authoritative king, the, the far, far greater kingdom of God. So back to the prayer from the beginning. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So the call is simple. Let us spend more time filling our hearts with the size of our Savior than with the size of our problems. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are so great beyond all that we can imagine. Your kingdom is unbelievably good and glorious and, and vast, and your power is beyond measure. Your greatness, nobody can get done ever searching through it. Jesus, we rejoice that you are the great king, the creator of all that is, and even the stupendously large, massive black holes are nothing to you. You are great. Your goodness is beyond compare. We rejoice in who you are. Fill our hearts with your greatness. Not that we would deny our trouble, but that our troubles would turn out to be like child's play to you. And so while we wait, we will rejoice that you are God over all, that you are our Savior, and one day, Jesus, you will come back and take us into your kingdom to fully experience the unending kingdom, the amazingly wonderful and beautiful and glorious and creative and powerful kingdom of our God. And you are Lord and our Savior, we pray. Amen.